Good afternoon, everyone. My name is David Lease. I'm your proud host of Leaders on the Frontier, and I want to welcome you to our live discussion today on X and also YouTube. So a warm welcome to our audience, and we're looking forward to hearing your comments and your questions about our important topic today as we discuss the invocation of the Emergency Measures Act. And of course, uh, you know the, the big news that on January the 23rd, it was uh, ruled by a federal judge that it was unconstitutional, it was against the law. And so we'll talk about both that Emergency Act and its implications a little bit with um, our special guest, but also we're gonna talk about the Coots Four, um, the four gentlemen who were arrested without bail um, a long time ago, some 725 days, I believe approximately, that were held uh, in prison. Um, uh, and, and so we're gonna talk about that case as well. So I am delighted to welcome our special guest today, senior fellow with the Frontier Center, uh, Ray McGinnis. Uh, Ray is both an author, uh, he's written several books, and I encourage you to look him up, and also a lot of um, articles and analysis about many issues, including the issues that we're gonna talk about today. So a warm welcome to you, Ray. Great to be speaking with you and back on your show, David. Well, Ray, we're glad you could join us because um, these are big times. Uh, and I'll start off with the decision that was made by the, the court, uh, Justice uh, Mosley, uh, on January 23rd, uh, saying that the use of the Emergencies Act was illegal. It was unconstitutional. So what was your reaction? Were you surprised by that decision, Ray? I was surprised. I, I knew that there was a civil, you know, a, a, a challenge to the to the government uh, and that that was reported back in February 2023 that there was going to be this challenge by these several groups and individuals and that there was going to be some some sort of a, a hearing uh, back in April of 2023. But really, it was not, you know, whatever happened uh, in terms of the uh, the lawyers and, and, and witnesses speaking before the judge, that, that wasn't being reported by the press hardly at all. And so all of a sudden, out comes this uh, decision on the 23rd of January, and I was surprised. And, and given the numerous court decisions that have, that have, where judges have, have, uh, tapped their uh, sales to the orthodoxy of the day. Uh, I was surprised that here was a judge that was refreshingly scrutinizing uh, the claims of government and finding the government in this case uh, overreached and uh, violated the constitution. Indeed, so it was a historic decision and uh, we're gonna go through a little bit of the um, rationales in a moment, but. Ray, you have written about this time extensively, this moment in history where the uh, truckers convoy, the freedom convoy made its way across the country to Ottawa. Can you kind of refresh our memory? Because it's hard to believe that it's um, uh, some time ago that, that this all this event occurred. Can you kind of just summarize where the uh, truckers convoy began and, and, and kind of how it ended up in Ottawa? So the, uh, the, the protest in question, the, the, the catalyst was the Canadian government's decision that truck drivers would all need to be vaccinated to enter Canada. Um, and of course, if you're not vaccinated, then there could be, uh, you know, a, a particular customs agent might refuse a truck driver entering Canada, or they would require them to perhaps be quarantined for 10 to 14 days. And of course, if you're just going on a, on a uh, driving from uh, uh, Toronto to Buffalo uh, with a load of, of, of cargo to a furniture store, then you get back to, uh, to the Niagara Falls border and you're told you're gonna be in, in quarantine for 14 days or you can't cross back in. Uh, that's, not a vi that's not viable for a truck driver to make a living. You can't be going across the border and then not being allowed to, 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 to work and have to be under, you know, basically in your home for two weeks, <laughs> you know, you get to get to drive, drive across the border twice a month. That's not going to make, make a living. So, uh, so the, and also this was fairly unique in all the world. Truck drivers were driving uh, 
many countries, regardless of their particular restrictions for ordinary citizens uh, across across the globe, truck drivers were were given an exemption, as the prime minister had for a long time into into this in Canada, because truck drivers are driving uh, products uh, across borders to help with the economy and to secure a strong supply chain. And so truck drivers across Europe and truck drivers across into South America and, and you know, Southeast Asia were, were driving across borders without any problem. But in Canada, you know, even though uh, there was a health committee meeting of parliament in January uh, where health minister Duclos and Dr. Theresa Tam uh, spoke to the, to the health committee of parliament and they, they said that there was no, there was no, no data that they had to show that truck drivers were spreading COVID. So all of this was a catalyst then for, for, for people, uh, not just truck drivers, but, but truck drivers spearheaded this to go to Ottawa and say, you know, where's the beef? Where, wh why should there be this kind of uh, a requirement? Uh, plus, so you know, in, in, in that context, Ray, it's, it's, I think a lot of this detail is, is fascinating and I'm so glad that you have a great handle on it, is that to be clear, the imposition of that kind of mandate on this particular group of people who spent so much of their time in, what is it again, their, their, their cab was yeah. not like to this day, we don't have any information or health data that supports that invocation. And so this was a direct assault on their way of making a living. Um, so it's, it's very curious then. So, you know, in retrospect, looking back at this, Ray, is it clear in your mind that this was a, not a health public policy that was, you know, used to try to protect people? It was really, was it more of a of a political initiative, a kind of a wedge issue designed to kind of advance the government's political uh, narrative or to their their advantage? So it wasn't policy; it was more of a political tactic. Is that a? Am I being too cynical, Ray? No. On the twenty fourth of November at the Public Order Emergency Commission, Deputy Prime Minister Christian Freeland conceded uh, that uh, that the push to get truck drivers to be vaccinated was was done uh, as a uh, to signal to all of the unvaccinated five to six million Canadians that they should also get vaccinated too. So it was uh, it was a, a kind of a coercive measure to get everybody else on board, regardless of their profession, who had not yet been vaccinated. And I want to add significantly that I, I did not know this at the time, but but deep in the labyrinth of the of Health Canada's website, you can find a place where it indicates the number of people who have who they concede have been uh, uh, vaccinated and then had a vaccine injury. And around the time of January of, of 2022, there are over a hundred people that Health Canada was conceded conceding had actually died after getting this vaccine. So it wasn't, you know, this wasn't generally public knowledge at the time. I didn't know that. But but here you have uh, the insistence of the government that people can go ahead and get a, quote, safe and effective vaccine. And there are some people who are getting it and who are actually dying as a consequence of that decision. Okay, so within this context, Ray, we had the convoy sweep across the country from all directions. And even before they made it to Ottawa, we had the most senior officials in the government labeling them, um, I would use the word demonizing them, as, as people with unacceptable views. That was already happening before they got to Ottawa. Is that right? That's correct. That's correct. And there were people in the prime minister's office and uh, connected with public safety minister Marco Mendocino's office with text messages, maybe emails too, going back and forth prior to the liberal uh, cabinet uh, retreat on, I think, the 24th of January, uh, bouncing around ideas about framing the protesters uh, as a January 6th North as white supremacists and racists and so on. So, uh, you know, there was a, a bit of steam and, you know, people 
uh, excited that they have certain people who are reporters with CTV or Global or CBC that that would surely be happy to join join in on on the uh, characterization of the protesters quite a few days before they even arrived in in Ottawa. Wow. So it is really remarkable um, that you had this kind of characterization happen. You had uh, people arrive in Ottawa, the the the, um, uh, the the truckers, and they immediately you had all kinds of stories circulating that um, uh, they were um, up to untoward activity, like there was food being stolen from a food bank. You had all kinds of things about people being assaulted. You had the placement of a, a Nazi flag. Um, I mean, it, it was it was really quite bizarre. And at the same time, you had all kinds of peaceful protests happening. You even had the setting up of a, you know, food um, areas where they were serving food to all kinds of people. It's almost like a kind of a, uh, a street party atmosphere, even with jumpy uh, jumping castles to boot. So within that context, I am amazed by the differences in telling of story between what was on the ground and what was going on in 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 the media. It was really really something. And I, I still remember when um, the late uh, Leon Fontaine actually sent a group from Bridge City News all the way to Ottawa, and they actually reported this, and they were going after. The good, bad, and the ugly on the ground, and they just found a complete contrast. So, I mean, you you must have made the same observations, Ray, that there was a, just a, a complete contrast between what the media was saying and what was happening on the ground. There, there was, and I mean, thankfully, I, I mean, I stumbled upon um, reporter uh, Rupa Subramanya, who has been written, writing for the National Post at the time, and. And she is, is an Indo-Canadian woman of color reporter who lived just five, you know, minute walk from from Parliament Hill, and she had uh, she talked about having all this stuff in her head about the, the portrayal of these depiction of these people coming to Ottawa. So she was curious to see what was happening, and she interviewed I think over 150 people, uh, numerous people of color. Uh, as uh, many women, even though the, the the protest was depicted as misogynist, and she, as a as a person of color, uh, says she never encountered a single uh, incident of misogyny or racism, or white supremacist, and neither did uh, many of the women or persons of color, or or other other you know or Caucasians that she interviewed. You know, this was not reflected at all what was happening. Uh, you know, I heard a, a young man who was in who whose mother was glued to the CTV, I think, and very afraid for her Afro-Canadian son who was involved in a, a you know managing a fitness club. And he said, "Well, you know, mom, you should come down and see this." And and you know, I promise we'll you know we'll we'll leave immediately if you feel uncomfortable. And so they were down for some hours, and and he said afterwards, you know how you know how do you feel? And she said. I can't believe what I'm hearing on the news. These people are so friendly. So, you know, this is a huge disconnect. Stories uh, about, you know, let's, uh, you know, uh, threats to bomb a children's hospital, uh, people uh, associated allegedly with the, uh, with the protest who are trying to set fire clumsily to, you know, arson a, a residential building and that proved not to be true uh, you know so so there there's a whole litany of everything but the kitchen sink that was you know laid on and piled on day after day after day uh, and after it's all said and done uh, the people who are most uh, who are front and center in the ongoing story aside, set aside the coots for uh, uh, Tamara leach and Chris Barber are are on an ongoing trial, and it's it's going to be 35 days coming into March, for mischief. If if they had uh, found a single person in Ottawa who who actually had uh, been violent, physically violent, you can bet that that person and their face would be would be all over the front pages of uh, of all kinds of papers and media outlets from coast to coast unendingly. But that that didn't no, happen. I, I... I, I think you're absolutely right, Ray. So in that context, and it's good that you brought up um, our friend uh, Rupa Supermania, 
uh, and her uh, covering of it. Because I think those are seminal moments where there are enough um, voices within the media to counteract what, really what was the dominant narrative to try to portray uh, the truckers as a bunch of, quote, um, people of unacceptable views, white supremacists and the whole bit, when in fact, uh, so many of them were, were people of color. I mean, it's just utterly bizarre. So one of the things that, that did come into effect then was, um, and I do remember this history well, was things were wrapping up. There was a kind of a uh, set of agreements and, and good working relationships between the protesters and police. Um, they were working together. And there was even agreements around uh, limiting honking, as I recall. I mean, um, people were starting to move out. Um, so help us understand, Ray, the days just before the invocations of the Emergency Act, because we recall that there was the um, the blockade on the Ambassador Bridge, and then that was broken up several days before uh, February 14. That, that's the anniversary date, a Valentine's Day of all things. Um, but help us bring alive that time leading up to the invocations of the Act. So there was, yes, there was a, a protest in Windsor and uh, the, the, uh, the blockade at the Ambassador Bridge was, was cleared by, by late on the evening of the 13th. Uh, and, uh, you know, through the regular, uh, uh, you know, laws that police uh, are allowed to, 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 to exercise, there was protests in Coots uh, with some serious well, actually, with the charges that were being laid in Coots against the four men in particular, were initially just mischief charges on the night of the 13th and the early morning hour of the 14th and noon on the 14th for one man, Jerry Morin, who was heading west from, from Calgary to Pritis to, to do some work on a, on a ran for a rancher. Uh, but but their, their charges of conspiracy to commit murder only were laid, you know, later in the afternoon, just, you know, just you know, just before the prime minister invoked the Emergencies Act. And then in, in Ottawa itself, you have the successful negotiations, hush-hush negotiations between key volunteers with the, with the protest and the city of Ottawa. And by noon on, on, the, on the day of the invocation, the protesters, well, the, the city of Ottawa, they're taking photos of each license plate of each truck that's leaving the downtown area. I think hundred and between 100 and 120 had already left by noon and, and the schedule of removing all of the vehicles, 75% of the vehicles was the plan by the end of the 16th of February uh, was to be, it was going, was proceeding smoothly. And then all of a sudden, uh, you know, the protesters were being stopped by, by police and couldn't move their vehicles out, you know, on the 15th. And Steve Kanalakis with the city of Ottawa was, quote, blindsided by this, uh, by this, uh, you know, by, by the federal government seeming to, uh, to intervene and, and, and stop, uh, stop the removal of vehicles. Yes, sir, uh, can, you, can you just clarify that, Ray? Because I, I don't want to uh, bury that one. Are you saying that at one point as the, the, the trucks were withdrawing from Ottawa, there was intervention on behalf of the federal government to actually stop them from leaving Ottawa before they used the Emergencies Act. Well, no, the the um, the, the 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 Emergencies Act was invoked uh, what four thirty or so on the on on Valentine's Day the fourteenth, but you continue to have what's happening as the. Um, as the as the protesters and the city of Ottawa continue to try and get more vehicles, you know, rolling out of the city, you know, into the fifteenth, the following day of the Emergencies Act, then you have you know police, the Parliamentary Protective Service, and so on, are now preventing uh, vehicles from leaving the city, you know, which is what you'd want to have done. I want to I want to also remind your viewers. That uh, when when the when the protesters were arriving, they thought that they were all going to be uh, up on the uh, Johnny McDonald Parkway and George Etienne Cartier, if I've got the name right, 
So about 2,500 vehicles, uh, trucks uh, would be up there and that there was going to be shuttles from, from, from those locations where, where, you know, foot passengers would be walking around. There wouldn't have been any, anybody on, on Wellington street at all. However, uh, the police in Ottawa directed each vehicle, no, you park here, you go on this street, you go on Kent street, you know, and so on. So, all of this, uh, as has come out in both the PO, the Public Order Emergency Commission, and the trial for Tamara Leach and Chris Barber, makes very clear that the the truck drivers and, and other vehicles were going to their locations in the downtown Ottawa area because the police were waving them forward and and pointing to where they should stop and park their their vehicle. Exactly. So this background is all very relevant because you can kind of understand better this decision. And, and so part of the context here is that, um, and, I, and I should just remind everybody, I'm talking with Ray McGinnis, a senior fellow with Frontier, about the, uh, in the use of the Emergency Measures Act and the COOTS IV. Uh, so please bring on your, your questions, your comments. Uh, we're curious what you think about this uh, important point in Canada's history and what it means to you. Um, so Ray, just picking up those threads then, um, it, it's curious. So the, the truckers come into Ottawa, they are directed by police to, to go in certain parts of the city. And then later as, as things are coming to a close, um, the, the, uh, act is used, the emergency act, which is supposedly, um, uh, kind of a, a sledgehammer of, of legislation, uh, to be used only in last resort in a national emergency. And what I find fascinating is that before that, one of the key requests of the, the protest was to meet with officials. Um, and, and, you know, people know that I was formerly a, 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 a mayor and, and, you know, it would be typical business to meet with people that were, had concerns about issues or, or protesters and sit down and, and civilly have a discussion but they never met with their protesters. Is there ever any record as to why they would not meet with people who had really put everything on the line in terms of their, their livelihood and everything to come to Ottawa that no one would sit down and actually have a civil conversation, Ray? No, and I think the, even the Attorney General of, of Ottawa at one point had... Uh had asked, I think if I've got the right person or the deputy attorney general of Ottawa had asked and said it would be a good idea if the uh, if if some representatives from the government, not necessarily the prime minister, but some representatives uh, would would meet with them uh, to discuss things, not necessarily even to agree, but to have have a conversation, which which is a long standing tradition going way back to the 19, you know, you know, to, to, the, to, the, to the 19th century. So. Uh, and you even have recommendations by uh, uh, police uh, in the Ottawa Police Service and police and the Ontario Provincial Police saying we, we should do the same thing as what, what happened when there had been about 11 week uh, strike with people protesting on, on rail lines uh, uh, in, in 2020 uh, from early January until around the 20th of March of 2020, there were all kinds of protests and some highways shut down in, in, in Ontario and rail lines, uh, freight service, passenger service, all disrupted for all this time. And throughout that protest, the prime minister's attitude was, well, we need to, we need to uh, understand these people and negotiate with them. So, but, but in 2022, the attitude was, these people are, are too reprehensible to even have a discussion with, or they're impossible to discuss, or, we can't figure out who we would have a discussion with, which is even stranger given that people like Tamara Leach were being reported in the news. And, you know, and, and then you have people uh, like Christopher Freeland saying, she, you know, almost acting as if, as if she hardly knows who Tamara Leach might be. And when she's testifying before the Public Order Emergency Commission, it's uh, it's too cute to believe. So within that context, it, it, um, it really is hard to believe that there was no discussions uh, with this protesters. And, and as time moves on, uh, they uh, use the Emergencies Act. They do kind of a, a systematic clearing of, of people on the ground as well that did stay. 
Um, and uh, we also had the, the freezing of bank accounts with the people who, who gave money towards the, the protest. It was really quite a, it sent shockwaves around the world as people saw both the images in Ottawa of, um, of, of uh, you know, a certain type of, of almost like a militarized police force, paramilitary move in to clear Ottawa, but also it sent shockwaves really around the whole banking community around the world that Canada would actually freeze people's bank accounts. Um, were there other key highlights that, that, that you remember from, from that history as well, Ray? Well, and around this time too, I mean, noise violations, I, I want to say, I mean, it, it, no one wants to hear a car alarm or, or, or a horn honking, you know, understandably. Uh, and, uh, and that keeps coming up and was mentioned by numbers of people like, you know, there, there was noise. But uh, a provincial judge, uh, McLean, uh, ruled on the 7th of February that the hogging had to stop and, and the protesters agreed and, and they had block captains. And if there was a rogue truck driver uh, honking occasionally uh, after the 7th, they would be warned, we're going to cut your air horn, buddy or else you, you, know, you, stop, you stop honking or we're going to cut your air horn. And it stopped. And even Zexy Lee uh, at the Public Order Emergency Commission is one of the key uh, Ottawa residents conceded that basically there was hardly any honking after the 7th of, of February. So for people to say, well, they had to, they had to invoke the Emergencies Act to stop the honking, that, that honking had stopped a week before the invocation. So, and, and also the... Uh, you know, there are other, you know, you could say legitimately the city of Ottawa, it could have declared a curfew. They could, they could have, um, you know, there's a number of things that they could have done. And one of the, the, one of the things you do before the last resort of invoking the Emergencies Act is you can call in the army. But uh, Justice Rouleau in his report said, well, you know, that's what the Emergencies Act said in the legislation back in 1988 and times have changed. Well, Nothing has changed except perhaps the size of the Canadian military, which has shrunk a bit. But otherwise, the Canadian military remain available uh, and were available for the prime minister to call in on the 14th if he felt that that was important, which would have been, you know, and other, other things in the criminal code were also available to the RCMP and so on. Uh, so, uh, so for the government to, to reach for this, uh, uh, what has now been shown to be unconstitutional, uh, uh, hammer, uh, you know, is uh, is a stain on on Canada, and and the and the emergent and and the, the the you know the the uh, the freezing of some I gather two hundred and eighty individuals uh, bank accounts was all done. Uh, Justice Mosley found in his in his judicial review was all done on an ad hoc basis. It was you know, and you had people whose bank accounts were frozen that were not even in Ottawa protesting. Utterly bizarre. Um, okay, so let's move forward here. Uh, and this is a little bit confusing because we, we have the decision by the federal court calling this invocation or use of the act as illegal, full stop, period. It's a brilliant decision. I recommend everybody read it um, if you can. Um, but, um, it, you know, and, and, and Ray has done some really good analysis, but, but make sure you look, uh, the Platon, the, the, the main, um, uh, heroes that brought this case forward were the Canadian Constitution Foundation, of course, the Canadian Civil Liberties Foundation. So they deserve kudos for, for really bringing this case forward and bravo on them. And I did have a, um, uh, um, uh, Joanna Barron on from the uh, Canadian Constitution Foundation the other week to discuss this. So be sure to look at that. But in this context, the ruling was very clear. Um, this was no national emergency within the meaning of the act. Um, it should only be used as a last resort. Um, there were no threats to the security of Canada. And I think many uh, intelligence police officials testified to that. Um, there was no economic um, harm uh, as part of the threshold that would invoke the act. I mean, the decision is is really, I think, a slam dunk in terms of it being illegal. But what's confusing 
I think maybe to some Canadians, is that prior to this decision was a judicial review of sorts as required by the Act. So if you, within the Act, if, if a government would use it, you'd also have to have a review of it. And that was undertaken in Ottawa um, last year. And you actually attended a number of the hearings. And that was kind of, um, I would refer to it politely as a muddled decision, because it said, well, rational decision makers, if I recall it correctly, could kind of come out on either way. They could say it's it was inappropriate or it was appropriate. So it was kind of a, and, and maybe it's because of the, the, the particular judge that, that, that went through that process. But were you, how do you reconcile the difference between this federal court's decision that is law versus the other kind of muddled review that was done? Like, how do you yeah. how do you square that circle, Ray, or 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 can't you? No, and let me just add the chronology is the Emergencies Act requires within sixty days of the Prime Minister uh, an, uh, set up a, a, an inquiry into the use of the Emergencies Act, and that inquiry ran for you know had seventy six witnesses over six weeks, and then a a week of a panel uh, dis discussing. Uh, constitutional issues, and that ran from mid-October into early December of 2022, and then they came out, you know, with their decision, uh, their report on the 17th of February 2023, and Justice Rouleau listened incredibly to all 76 witnesses, all of the police uh, and intelligence, all at different points during their cross-examination said that, you know, it was a, a family-friendly atmosphere, not a threat to passerby. Numbers of the police intelligence uh, witnesses said, like Patrick Morris and Thomas Carrick, that, that they were uh, really astonished and troubled by the disconnect between the intelligence that they were gathering on the ground of how it wasn't violent, how it wasn't racist, and all of these things. And yet they would be providing intelligence, and that would go up to the chain, and then suddenly someone like Marco Mendocino, the public safety minister, or Christopher Freeland, uh, the deputy prime minister, would be, would be depicting um, the protests in ways that were unrecognizable to the people who were themselves providing the intelligence that would go to cabinet for them to say something to the press. So, uh, and as I recall, those ministers would actually say, we're getting this from intelligence authority. So they, in fact, the receipts don't, they don't seem to support that line at all, do they? Well, this is the cleverness of it. Because, yes, the cabinet minister can say, we've received intelligence reports. And then the viewers of the newscast can infer but having received the intelligence reports that the minister and the cabinet in question is telling the press what the reports say. But then they go on to say something that's 180 degrees in the opposite direction. And uh, the impressionable uh, public will, will not know that they've been hoodwinked by, by a misrepresentation, uh, to put it mildly, of what's going on. And so, uh, and so you have uh, all of this testimony, and then you have uh, uh, Paul Rouleau in his in his twenty one hundred or so page uh, uh, report, which I think was certainly written in, in, in record time, uh, in nine weeks or so, with the help of, of unnamed people who were not credited. Uh, he he will wave away. Uh, the, the very clear statements of these intelligence and police and police officials on the witness stand and instead prefer to reframe the word violence. The violence now can be expanded to mean not physical violence, not criminal code violence, uh, not like somebody punched somebody in the jaw and, and you know, and they were arrested. But now it's it's psychological violence. And so he looks to uh, a couple of the Ottawa residents who talked about uh, phantom hawking, like after after a, a week, uh, uh, you know, or more of, of of the honking, 
some witnesses could still recall the honking like it was yesterday. But but and and that's you know that that but that's not violence. I mean you know so so but 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 he he does that kind of thing and and so yeah. it's it. And so he he says reasonable people could disagree with his conclusions and and and, and they could in spades because his his conclusions don't uh, you know he, he's written a report where he's had all these all these witnesses they've said a lot of things that completely undercut the government's narrative and yet uh, and yet the, the public order emergency emergency commission report uh, gives a high five to the government. Although he sees, he's, uh, Rulo says he did it, did it reluctantly. Uh, so it's, yeah, it's, no, it's I, a whitewash. I think that's a brilliant summation, uh, Ray, of, of that. And I think Rulo, in my humble opinion, did enormous damage to the credibility of that kind of government process. So on a related note then, we have the Coots for who, uh, can you just set up the background on that one and, and um, as we look to the recent release of, of two of them. And, but if can you give us the background of that one? There's a lot of moving parts here. Yeah, yeah. so you've got um, four men uh, who, are, who are arrested uh, variously on the evening of the 13th of February, 2022. Uh, Chris Lysak, who is an electrician, um, You've got um, Tony Olianek, who's 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 arrested as well that evening, and then um, later that night, Chris Carbert uh, is uh, is arrested while he's sleeping in 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 a, in a trailer. I mean, remember that the charges are that these four men uh, at the Coots blockade across from Mount Montana a border are are plotting to, uh, uh, the four of them are plotting to have like a standoff with, with uh, and, and shoot police officers, the RCMP. Now there are over 50 police cruisers, so over 100 RCMP officers on the ground at the Coots blockade. There's just four of these guys. And even, and, and, and you've got, uh, you know, Jerry Moran the next day. I mean, you'd think if he's like a, a part of what, uh, Brenda Lucky, RCMP commissioner at the time, was saying that uh, that, that that there's this hardened cell of, uh, of people that are armed. Now uh, Jerry Morin's the fourth who 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 gets arrested, and he's driving. Uh, he's like he's a, he's a lineman, and and he's driving on a on a work project to go to a ranch west of Calgary uh, in the noon hour the following day on the 14th of February when he gets arrested by a SWAT team. Now, uh, and also I want to say like Jerry Moran, uh, I've heard various different reports, but he certainly had been working on Vancouver Island till about the 9th of, of uh, the 9th or 10th of February. The four of these men, two of them were, were, were classmates from, from public school, Chris Carbert and Chris Lysak, but the four of them, given Jerry Moran being over on Vancouver Island to about the 9th or 10th of February, had uh, never met each other as a foursome until, you know, around just, just before the final weekend of, of the protests in Coots. But we're, we're told to believe that the four of them got together on some, some street or in a saloon uh, uh, in Coots and said, you know, why don't we, why don't we have a standoff with 100 police officers? And, and, and you know, what they had were but basically hunting rifles. So it, it's, um, it's, it's, a, it's, you know, it, then, then the, then the RCMP had had a photo of a cruiser with all of these weapons, uh, uh, precariously, uh, leaning on a table, quite a few of them, not at all, uh, properly bagged and everything else, but nonetheless, uh, it looked like a scary photo and it, it was uh, a catalyst for uh, many people at the Public Order Emergency Commission who were in the cabinet or senior uh, government officials like the national uh, advisor to the prime minister, um, security advisor to the prime minister, Jody Thomas, to say, well, see, we've got these four guys who, who are arrested in coots and uh, it's a sign of people trying to overthrow the, the government. So uh, uh, apparently uh, 
we, we were told at the time that the Crown had compelling evidence to show that there was this conspiracy to commit murder, you know, uh, to, and that they also had, that these four had other people who were in other provinces uh, who were uh, like the puppet masters of this whole conspiracy. And, in, and since, since the 14th of, of February, nobody else, at least to anyone in the public, and there's been no public announcement by the RCMP, oh, by the way, these are the names of the following people who we've also uh, knocked on the door and interviewed to see if they were involved in, in a larger conspiracy with these four men. And then all of a sudden, uh, after being denied bail for several of them, you know, like even twice, like Chris Carbert, um, uh, they're, they're too dangerous to release from, from, from custody, denied bail for basically two years. And then all of a sudden on the 6th of February, after Chris Lysak uh, gets uh, crowdfunding in, in November and gets finally a good lawyer, not just a legal aid lawyer who's, who's not, not the best, finally gets a lawyer um, to, uh, to challenge the, the crown and say, you know, with a charter, I think a section eight application for the charter say, well, what is it about, you know, are, were these uh, search warrants and wiretaps legal? And then all of a sudden the crown drops all of the charges against uh, uh, Chris Lysak and also uh, Jerry Morin uh, and, uh, and comes up with new relatively minor firearms charges like well, you forgot. You 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 should have locked that uh, that that gun, you know, in a locked door, and it wasn't properly stored or something. So, 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 how is it that the crown? Uh, you know, this is this is as serious as as the FLQ crisis in terms of the last time. I mean, the the War Measures Act, uh, the Child of the War Measures Act, is the Emergencies Act, and the FLQ crisis involved, uh, you know, the the murder of one politician and the kidnapping of another, and it's very serious. And so this is also very serious too. And so what, what it, you know, did the crown really have solid evidence at all? I mean, otherwise it would seem uh, to, to see justice done if these four actually were seriously, you know, could be, could be tried and convicted. You would think that the crown would want to soldier on and take it to trial and, 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 and put their case before the, before uh, the public and then have them all convicted if that's what the Crown thinks. But it didn't take much for the Crown to suddenly fold their cards with the two. Uh, the other two, Chris Carver and, and, and Tony Olianic are gonna be on uh, at a hearing on the 20th of, of uh, uh, February just coming up. Okay, so that hearing is coming up uh, for the other two uh, on the 20th, so stay tuned. Uh, in the meantime, you actually wrote a, um, a piece on this uh, on the Frontier uh, website um, regarding the release of um, the two of the of the Coots uh, prisoners. So I'd encourage people to look at that article if they have an opportunity to do that. Um, so I do have a question um, from the audience, and that is, so were these four were they actually dangerous or were they a public threat to public safety then in your estimation ray well th three of i mean three of I mean, they, they, these are all working you know gravel operator electrician lineman i forget the other one but they're mm -hmm. you know none of them you know three of the four are are, are fathers young to teenage children none of them have criminal records uh, i mean one of them had a a, a minor thing with somebody, you know, getting into a, a fight in, 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 a, in a bar where the other person maybe started the fight. But, but in any event, you know, uh, it, it's, there's no, it, this is, this is not, this is not like ISIS or, 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 you know, like, or, or some sort of a terrorist group, uh, you know, so the, the, uh, the portrayal of these four men, uh, and in light, in light of the Crown dropping these serious charges, you know, most serious charges for the two, the moment there was any pushback from a, a lawyer that knew how to, how, to, how to really scrutinize, like the Crown's been able to go through this whole two years 
without providing full disclosure to the defense about what their what the case against their clients is. Uh, so it's it's uh, it, it's uh, we we have a system of justice in Canada. I've, I've sadly found where um, nine out of ten people who are arrested uh, and charged with a, with a crime uh, will uh, will will agree to a plea deal, so it will never go to trial. Now that's not good in a system where police think, you know, we don't really have to gather all of our evidence. We don't don't have to take all the witness statements or or you know go and you know find out what we need to 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 cross our T's and dot our I's because there's a chance that nine times out of ten the people who are charged here in the case of the Coots four will probably uh, give up eventually. I mean Jerry Morin on and off was in uh, solitary confinement for 74 days. I mean, what what does it take uh, in terms of putting enough pressure on an individual? Who's not able to make any any living? Who's got bills to pay for their home? Or you know, I mean, there's all kinds of of things. If you're just put in limbo for two years, uh, treatment, uh, denial of, of medications, all kinds of little things and large things, drip, 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 that add to the pressure of uh, making it optimal for somebody who's been charged. To plead a something, so the crown can say, "Well, we got we got a, a a guilty plea, even if it has nothing to do with the original charges." Well, so in this context, Ray, uh, I mean, obviously, it's it's hard to know fully the answer to that that question, but I think what you're doing is really pointing to the context that says, "Wow, it seems very doubtful that these people." Um, uh, these so-called suspects were really worthy of these kinds of charges. And then to be put in, uh, uh, you know, in, in, in really prison for some 720 days plus is just an extraordinary, without bail, like they're held uh, under lock and key. It's just, I've never seen this before, uh, to my knowledge. Have you? No, and, and, and for a number of them, like in these remand centers, which are never set up for people to be, uh, in custody, you know, for two years, uh, mm -hmm. I think a number of them, if I'm, if I have this right, uh, we're not even allowed to go outdoors through all this time. Mm -hmm. I mean, except, except they could go outdoors if they were being taken, you know, to the Lethbridge courthouse for an appearance and they would taken out of the van mm -hmm. and in, uh, in shackles and go off to the courthouse. Yeah. But, but otherwise they're, they're, you know, they're, they're indoors the whole time. So, all, all of this. And I think, again, uh, the Crown uh, would not be dropping uh, their charges against the two men who are now uh, out, have been released without conditions, if they didn't have something solid. Because, you know, I mean, if you, if you have uh, a conspiracy to commit murder and another uh, mm -hmm. associated plot to overthrow the government, uh, uh, I don't see why, why a crown that thought that they had a solid case to convict would just shrug and say, well, you know, mm -hmm. as long as we get a minor firearms charge, off you go. Yeah. No, let's, let's be real. So <laughs> if we look at the, the, the bigger picture now, because this is very important history, we're doing this program for a reason. Uh, it's the anniversary, like two days after Valentine's Day with the original uh, use or invocation of the Emergencies Act. And then you have the um, this whole exercise. If we look at the history, we're kind of connecting the dots saying, what really happened here? What do we learn from this train wreck of a fiasco where your government doesn't meet with the protesters? They seem to vilify them. They clearly did many things that were illegal. Um, as, as per the, the federal court's decision uh, saying its use was illegal. Um, how did we learn from this? Was this kind of like a, an exercise where the government cynically used a political wedge issue and they didn't manage it well and they just kept using the media, uh, the mainstream media, to, to really move forward a set of messages that weren't really grounded in evidence or good public policy? Like what, what the heck happened here, Ray? Well, I think I think that a lesson that that 
that we've learned as a society is that uh, many of our fellow citizens, well, let me talk about democracy. If you go back to uh, Aristotle and Socrates, when they tried to establish democracy in Greece, they talked about how it's really important for citizens to be skeptical and to use their scrutiny, to not simply accept on, on its face every statement by a person in a position of authority. You have to ask them, how do you know? What makes you so sure? Uh, where's the evidence? You know, where's the evidence that the that taking the vaccine, like vaccinating 100% of Canadians will get us out of, out of the pandemic, especially given that there are whole cohorts of, of people like, well, for example, in the States, the Center for Disease Control had a conference in either 2022 or 2023, and you can bet 100% of those of those CDC employees were vaccinated, and yet they had a huge outbreak where hundreds uh, and hundreds got uh, got COVID. So, uh, so if the vaccine isn't uh, isn't effective, and if you've got, according to the Health Canada data from last September, if 455 Canadians got the vaccine and then died, so it's not safe for some of us. Uh, so, you know, you need to be able to ask the questions, but. But instead, we got uh, this really uh, the architecture of propaganda. And I think it's, you know, I may not know my history entirely of Canadian politics, but I think that, that what happened in, in January and February of 2022 uh, is a whole new scale of, of deception and, and propaganda that I don't think has, has ever been tried, at least this disingenuously uh, on the part of politicians uh, to to corral uh, the Canadian public to to side with them against our fellow citizens, and and so this whole you know the fe you know featuring all these headlines to create shock and confusion and trauma, uh, letting people know that the people protesting were Nazis and waving Confederate flags and it's with January North and and calling people transphobic and mercenaries and insurrectionists and, and a feral mob and, you know, anti-Semites and all, all kinds of things. It, it just, it just created uh, for too many people. What happens is we turn on the news, we hear a shocking story. And most of us, unfortunately, simply think that all that we need to do then is repeat the story that we were told on the nightly news the night before, share it with our friends over a water cooler, on a walk along a trail, or uh, at, a, at a restaurant or, or a cocktail party, and repeat it uh, verbatim without any question at all about, about whether or not it's true. No, I, I think you're absolutely right, Ray, is what you're doing is challenging us to think critically that maybe, just maybe, the government is making a head fake or is is actually lying to us. So you really have to look at this information and uh, and look at it critically. So I, I think that's a very important foundational principle for good citizenship. Um, I agree with you, Ray. And on that note, I know that we're anticipating a, a book uh, that you've um, written. I think that will be coming out in the next uh, several weeks so we're anticipating because you're going to be talking about this this history in great detail and talking about its lessons learned um so so um can you tell us a little bit more about that book yes well uh, the book is un is um unjustified the emergencies act and the inquiry that got it wrong and uh i'm i'm just working on you know go i'm going through the whole book now line by line before I send it to the typesetter next, uh, probably next Wednesday. I'm waiting until, given all these bombshell stories coming out, like Tamara Leach and Chris Barber and others have a lawsuit against the government now, or, or Vincent Jerseys uh, uh, and Edward Cornell have a, a separate lawsuit against the government for violation of charter rights. Uh, you know, all these stories are, are, are landing on me in the middle of getting the book to the typesetter. So, uh, probably a couple months, but it, it, it's looking at all at, at the whole of what was the what was the narrative in the mainstream media about about the protests? Why did the 
Did the protesters go to Ottawa in the first place? What was the counter narrative that began to 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 come out uh, questioning the uh, the claims of uh, of the media, for example, that the that the people in Ottawa had had weapons in their trucks uh, that wasn't true. Uh, and then the looking at the testimony at the at the public inquiry, uh, the report that came out, and what happened in at the Coots blockade and uh, and the trial of Tamara Leach and Chris Barber and the judicial review. And it's all there. It'll be there for people probably to read in a couple of months. It'll take a bit of time to, but for the typesetter and we have to do the index. Yeah, so that will be a landmark book and we'll anticipate that quite a bit, Ray, and we'll certainly be promoting it and uh, have you back on to do so. But within you know this context, I mean, this is important history and we it really begs uh, the question, what do we learn from this as Canadians? And I think what you said earlier is a very good insight, and that is, um, how do you, how do you, what do we do as citizens now? I mean, I think this is one of the questions that just came up in the chat is, what should we as citizens do um, to kind of um, learn from this and prevent this from happening again? Well, I am I am one of a number of people who are talking about this. I mean, there's people like Dr. Julie Pernessi, who who was fired from uh, uh, college in in Ontario. There's Tamara Leach. There's the, you know there's Keith Wilson, who represented the Freedom Corp. A number of the protesters in Ottawa. Uh, I think that uh, people can go to this particular podcast. They can go to other uh, discussions that have happened online uh, or, or look at a particular article uh, raising questions about this and have a conversation, you know, in, you know, in a kitchen or a cafe somewhere with a friend or family member who could possibly be persuaded to revisit what happened and, uh, and, and to, to re-examine what we were told because it's only going to happen you know, one person at a time, because uh, I think that there are some people who can be persuaded that maybe, because a lot of people have all kinds of stuff in their heads about, you know, they think maybe that the that Parliament Hill was just a wash and, and people with, with, uh, with Nazi flags. And I think that it's shocking. I mean, initially, like for me, like, I mean, I thought, well, I guess there were, there were Nazi flags there. And then I find out there was, well, it was one or maybe two at the most. And then where they were and, and hearing all these reports of people who who never saw a swastika at all through, you know, throughout the whole time they were there. So it's 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 finding, you know, who the people are that we can have conversations with, because we need to we need to shift public understanding about this, because this and I think it may take may take years or even decades for people for Canadians to come to terms with it, because we you know, we don't even necessarily consciously know this, but we do not believe that the media lies to us about big things and in this case they did we also don't want to believe that when it's really important and and you know the stakes are high that our politicians would also lie to us about what's going on and and also people don't want to believe that they've been fooled so there's also a personal psychology around can we step back from our own investment in wanting to believe that our first impressions were right and and get enough detachment so we can come at it again with fresh eyes and that that will take some time no i think you're right ray i think it will take uh, a considerable amount of time and work because um, people have been lied to and i think people in power have a great responsibility um, they are people give them consent through trust that what the decision makers are telling us are is, is by and large true. And, and of course, there's always healthy debate. But if you are spinning a yarn, you really do risk, I think, uh, doing an immense amount of damage to our relationships, our social fabric. Um, I think we all have stories where we had conversations with neighbors or friends who who, who really did not understand what was going on in, in my humble opinion. And, and uh, you could have a, a, a debate about that. So at least you're debating. But in this case, I think too many Canadians have just simply 
gone on with their lives understandably and have hoped that this goes away and we kind of forget the history. And I think that would be a grave mistake, would it not, Ray, as we look at within a free and democratic country, how do we rebuild our institutions? Because when we look around us during this whole episode, we had a lot of institutions that failed us. We had um, people in, as ministers of justice who didn't, I would argue, do, do their job to uphold justice and to ensure that the truth came out. Or you had um, members of the media really carrying absurd stories like the CBC story suggesting that this was funded by the Russians. Are you kidding me? Yeah. I mean, it goes on and on and on. So that's where my prayer is that we would take these lessons to heart so that we can never have this happen again and that we can actually build a, a much stronger, healthy, democratic society. Let me let me add a, a, a word of advice for people. Uh, I mean, this is really important, and we could all be tempted to go and find a friend or family member and just hammer them with with all with all the evidence that, that you know they could get from reading several of my articles and other articles by other people like Gord McGill on Newsweek and so on. But the starting point really is to have a conversation about you know. Would you be interested in having a conversation with and with the person you want to talk with about about you know like it's been two years since the invocation of the Emergencies Act and all that happened so you know what were your feelings about that and and very likely the person you're talking to is going to say like somebody told me a few weeks ago that they felt they felt that the whole coverage was really scary or or they or made them really angry. Or, or agitated, or or uh, indignant, you know, or, you know, disgusted, so on. You have to listen to that person tell you about why they felt like that, and, and it may take a while for them to get to, to unpack or 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 get off their chest all their continuing upset about what that was, and then you can say, so you know, like if they talk, if they bring up the Nazis, you could say. So on a scale of one to 10, how confident are you that there were, you know, a lot of Nazis, uh, you know, at Parliament Hill, uh, you know, whatever they say, 10 being very strong or five, I'm not so sure, but, you know, and then say, you know, you know, what, 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 you know, what, you know, would you be willing to reconsider, you know, like, you know, what, what would you, what would you accept as possible evidence to persuade you to, to look at it from another point of view, like, you know, Rupert Subramanya's posts as an Indo-Canadian woman freely going amongst the crowd un, un, unhampered and unharassed, you know. But, but you know, you, you, there's no point in, in giving people a whole bunch of evidence if they are preemptively not going to allow any of it. So, so we have to be, we, we also have to have to remember that there's a friend that we have that we're talking to and just like we wouldn't want them to, 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 to just give us a whole bunch of stuff about, well, here's what Anthony Fauci says about why the vaccine is safe and effective, or here's what Dr. Teresa Tam is. We know what that feels like. It's been coming at us for three or four years now about what the mainstream media has been saying to us. So we've, you know, we're done, you know, we're tired of that. So we don't want to do the same thing to them. We want to listen and then find out, you know, what might be even one thing that we could share with them that, we, that, that they could consider and they may not change their minds, but but they might. Well, I think that's very good advice, uh, Ray McGinnis, and certainly uh, the invitation to keep the conversation going as we try to get at the truth, but to also be tolerant and civil, dare I say with uh, grace, have these kinds of conversations. And that's part of being good citizens, is it not? And being able to be Canadians who live peacefully together in the same country. So I think that's historically been an incredible strength of this great country. So I think that's very good uh, advice, Ray. And I want to thank you for joining me for this important discussion as well as with our audience. Great. Thanks so much for having me. And uh, it's good to be talking about these important issues on the second, around the second anniversary of the invocation of the Emergencies Act. Indeed. So be sure to um, look at um, Ray's uh, writings and analysis, and we also anticipate 
the book that will be coming out uh, over the next several weeks. And we are grateful that you could join us as an audience and be sure to like us and share this conversation. Uh, Ray has spoken eloquently about the need to have conversations uh, about this topic. So perhaps sharing this uh, recording or this discussion with others might be a first start. So regardless, we're, we're grateful that everyone could join us and be sure to join us next week. Uh, we have this discussion weekly. This is a special broadcast uh, on this day. But every Thursday we have the live discussion on X and YouTube. And again, be sure to join us and uh, share this uh, conversation with others. In the meantime, I trust that you have a great day uh, over the next weekend.